so there was a Yemeni, for example, who they caught the FBI. We, we did our thing. We deported, but he came back and they caught him again. But this time they just cut him loose. Okay. And we don't know whatever happened to that guy. And mm. that's the kind of thing that would never in a million years have happened just a few years ago. It never would have happened, something like that. And there are other cases, just weird releases yeah. of people on the FBI watch list, screw-ups like that. And I think that with the numbers that are coming through and the numbers that are terrorists on the FBI watch list, suspected terrorists, that are the threat is elevated. And I yeah. think the bad guys know about it. And the reason I say the bad guys know about it is because we have the benefit of a, of a major FBI prosecution, investigation and prosecution out of Ohio recently, just wrapped up in April of 2023. Guy's name is Shihab Ahmed Shihab Shihab. Where's he's he from? A, he's an Iraqi. Okay. He came here as a, he over state his tourist visa and applied for asylum and immediately set about trying to import his old buddies from uh, ISIS over through Brazil, through the Darien oh, Gap. with the case, yeah. Over the southern border and he got caught, thank God. But during the investigation, he talked about, well, you know, I have experience with this. I just brought two Hezbollah guys over. There's no more in the court record beyond that. But that we know that Hezbollah would also understand that this is a prime time yeah. to bring people over. I've met Lebanese. Lebanese are part of it. They're coming over. Venezuelan Lebanese, Lebanese descent are coming over. We know that as well. People from Nicaragua are flooding the border. People from Venezuela are flooding the border. All of this is just insane. Mm. I mean, we... When in my time, we would just be sphincters tightened up all over the place right now. I think Hezbollah is the most dangerous uh, U.S. designated terrorist group in the world. Welcome to Border Wars, the first bilingual podcast that goes beyond the border. Welcome to the Border Wars podcast, the number one podcast in all of the Americas, the only podcast, bilingual podcast that takes you beyond the border. So we are in Austin, Texas, and we had to go to Austin for many reasons, but no more important reason than my current guest. And this is someone that if you watch some of our other videos, not our podcast, but webinars, we've had Todd Bensman on with us before, but Todd asked me, he wanted to go on the podcast. I said, no, Todd, we're not going to do a virtual. I'm going to come down to Texas because we got to do this in, in person. And I think single-handedly, Todd, you're one of probably the foremost experts on the border crisis. You've written two books. We're going to talk about that, but you're, you're pretty much, you know, making now a name as a prominent expert on understanding various dimensions of the border crisis from terrorism, criminality, capacity issues, uh, to just the bad policies that have led to this, to this issue. Um, Todd, first of all, it's great to have you here. I'm great to be in Austin. This is your town. That's right. I yeah. live here. The great, the best thing is that I didn't have to drive that far to get here. There so, you go. There you go. No, plus it's an honor to be here. No, it's an honor for us to have you. Um, you have a very distinguished career and I want to, I want to get into that a little bit because you have, I, I think the way, the best way I describe it is you have kind of like a dual hat. You were a journalist for a long time. You kind of still, in so many ways, are still doing journalistic work. I, I consider it more now research. Uh, uh, you're, I think an expert now. Uh, but you, you cut your teeth as a journalist, but you also spent time as an intelligence analyst, intelligence manager for the Texas Department of Public Safety, uh, focused specifically on counterterrorism. 
Uh, take us a little bit through that journey. How did it, how did it begin for you? What made you want to be a journalist? And then after you were uh, done, I don't want to say you're done, but after the journalism career, what made you want to go into counterterrorism? You know, I think as a young man, I read too many uh, Jack London books and uh, Ernie Pyle and, yeah. you know, all those great guys. Tom Glancy wasn't around yet. <laughs> no, but um, I mean, I'm dating myself here, <laughs> but uh, I just was attracted by the romance of uh, journalism. And, you know, back in, in the days when I was uh, going to college, you know, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. Where did, where did you go to school? Uh, well, I have my undergraduate from Northern Arizona University. Okay. And, um, you know, I think uh, when I was like a freshman or something, the movie The Killing Fields came out. Okay. And it was about this, you know, Sidney Schonberg and, the, you know, uh, the um, Cambodian um, genocide. Okay. And how, um, you know, his uh, fixer got caught up in it. And then he, anyways, just, I must've seen that six times. I said, I'm going to do what that guy's doing. Okay. That's really, that movie just killed it for me. And did you, did you, so, see, you saw that before college? Uh, I think I was probably a freshman or something okay. trying to figure out what I'm going to major. Or in. Like, anyway. So, um, you know, and then uh, Ernest Hemingway, of course I was great. You know, cut my teeth on his reporting, uh, from the you know, Spanish civil war yeah, and you know, world war two and all the rest of that. And I was like, I gotta be one of those guys. Okay. So, uh, you know, I got my degree in journalism and, um, within a few years I was trying to do what those guys did. I was, uh, you know, covered the Gulf war, uh, okay. as a freelancer. Did you, did you go to Kuwait? Uh, I ended up in Israel okay. uh, and then Jordan trying to get over to Baghdad during mm. that. And then I was in uh, Amman when the war ended. Okay. It's like, well, it's six weeks. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you thought you had maybe a few months to do this and then the war was done. Right. So, um, but you know, I was in uh, six or seven Scud missile attacks and, yeah. uh, you know, covered them and I, I did get published and okay. um, then came back to Israel after that and, uh, covered the uh, Intifada, the first one, mm. a little bit, the, the end of it, really. And then um, ended up uh, back in the States and then back in um, Eastern Europe when the wall came down. Okay. Um, covered the war in Bosnia for about a year. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, so, you know, I was trying to realize the dream. and So you started kind of covering international conflicts. Oh, yeah. Yeah, before you started doing anything domestic. Now, my first time out of the country was to uh, cover the Gulf War. I'd never even used my passport once. Oh, wow. I get on LL, get off, and they hand me a gas mask. It's my first time out of the country, and they said, welcome to Israel. Yeah. Here's your gas mask. There you go. Which I lost about two days later <laughs> or whatever. So anyway, not that I needed it, but you didn't know at that time. Um and, uh, you know, after a few years in Eastern Europe, I ended up with a uh, job, uh, full-time staff. I was able to kind of um, parlay all of that into a job with a Big Ten newspaper. Mm. That's how I ended up in Texas. Okay. Dallas Morning News. Are you from Arizona? Uh, I grew up, I was born in Texas, but grew up in Arizona. Okay. And then I was... Um, you know, after graduation, I travel. I, you know, I didn't yeah. really go back to Arizona. Uh, ended up in uh, Texas, Dallas Morning News, uh, staff writer there for 10 years. Okay. Um, did a lot of um, foreign reporting. I managed to you know, persuade them to 
Because when I was overseas as a freelancer, I was shoestring, you know, yeah. just on my own. Like I funded my own, you know. Operation, uh, yeah. You know, operation, you know, kind of like with a backpack yeah. and um, hitchhiking through war zones and that kind of thing. Um, you know, bumming hotels and rides and <laughs> whatever, you know, sometimes camping outdoors in uh, ruins. Wow. Um, but, you know, I published a lot. I mm. covered the siege of Sarajevo for... Uh, and we just published like everywhere, any, yeah, any place I that had, would pitch? I had six or seven papers that were my regulars in yeah. the States. Um, I, might, uh, I was based down there. I lived in um, Zagreb for a while. Mm. And then, uh, because that's where the airlift to, into Sarajevo, if you were okay, yeah. porter, you could get into Sarajevo from, on the airlift. And then they moved the airlift to split Croatia. And so then I moved with it mm. and then just kind of kept going with that. Uh, there was a time I covered the uh, war in Moldova. Oh, really? But never actually got a piece published because I couldn't get communications out. I was on the tier, the Russian side of that. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so I got conflict coverage experience, and then I parlayed that into a... Uh, so did the Dallas Morning News hire you because of your international experience? Totally. Okay. Oh, yeah. I walked in there with this portfolio of like, you know, and the war was still going on actually in 94 when I, when I went there and, um, then they just put me on the cops beat. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> Makes I was sense. just covering cops for about a year, night cops, homicides yeah. and all that. But, <laughs> you know, you become a good reporter doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, ultimately I, um, you know, I was there for a long time, so yeah. years, and um, I would uh, was assigned to the FBI to cover the FBI. Okay. Uh, oh, is that how you made your connections into the world of law enforcement and CT? That's right. Yeah, that's right. Because um, at that time, when I was assigned, uh, there was a um, major investigation going on uh, with uh, Hamas front groups in Dallas. Oh, really? Right. And is, is this tied to what like was now the Holy Land Foundation? It was the okay. Holy Land okay, Foundation. Okay, okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah. I ended up getting uh, sued by them. Okay. Uh, I was one of five reporters that they sued to shut us down. Huh. Uh, but then 9-11 um, happened, and I was covering uh, the FBI, and because of that, uh, a lot of people don't realize that the epicenter of the 9-11 terrorism, counterterrorism investigation was Dallas because... American Airlines was headquartered, headquartered there. And in its planes were all, and the, everything was happening there. Who who are the hijackers? Who are they? It, it was all happening in Dallas. All my people, all my sources, you know, uh, obviously. Um, Can I ask you one thing real quick? Yeah. How, how did you react to 9-11? You know, being now kind of on the beat, covering foreign wars, having been in the Middle East. What was your initial gut reaction to this? Uh, you know, it, it seemed clear to me that this would be a, this would be an Islamic yeah. terror attack. But um, I remember that morning uh, telling my wife that, you know, everything has changed now. Mm. Everything. And I wasn't the only one. Other yeah, of course, people of course. remember it. Like it was obvious that the world was just going to change. My yeah. career was going to change. Everything was going to change. Uh, and it did. I never covered anything else but terrorism again. Wow. Islamic terrorism for the remainder of my career yeah till today till today yeah. yeah uh so you know the holy land foundation you know and of course um the fbi was knocking down rolling up 
uh, terrorist in Dallas for the whole rest of the time I lived there. We had a lot of problems in Dallas. Um, immigration courts, we were using immigration law. Yeah. And um, I was covering uh, immigration proceedings against these guys because they decided not to do not to do criminal cases, but to get them out of the country them. sooner by yeah. deporting yeah, them. Yeah, I remember this. I covered yeah. tons of those things. These mm-hmm. guys are coming in there, and the government was presenting terrorism evidence mm-hmm. on them. And it was just like, you know. So did they recruit you into uh, the Texas Department of Public Safety, or did you kind of do that on your own initiative? I, I was recruited in there years later. I mean, in 2006, I took a job with the San Antonio Express News, which is a Hearst publication as an investigative reporter. It was basically the job was, what do I do? And they said, well, just win us some awards. (laughs) Make us look good. (laughs) Yeah. And they said, you can do whatever you want. Just pick your whatever you want to do. And so when I got down to San Antonio, I was looked around, it was 2006. And I'm like, what's the sexiest story going on down here? And it was the Calderon War oh, yeah, against uh, the cartels. Yeah, uh, it I was, was picking there. up right around that, I think 2006. Yeah. yeah, I was tearing it up down there. And uh, Hearst News considered out of San Antonio, that was kind of like their their base for border coverage. Mm-hmm. So I'm a gringo, mm-hmm. no Spanish, but I'm like, I'm doing that story. Okay. And we had other reporters that were doing that, but they, I didn't think they were doing a very good job of it. So I just took it. And probably for three years, I covered the war in Mexico. Mm. Um, that's when I got my first taste of uh, border. Border, yeah. And I loved it. Mm. There's still no sexier story anywhere than that thing. Yeah. Uh, traveled all over interior Mexico doing stories, covered like big, long series. I did a series on gun running. Um, uh, I did a multi-part series on um, asylum uh, seekers coming out of Mexico. You know, b- g- cops getting shot to full of holes. And so tra- wait, let, let me just pause you right there because I I get it, but I want to make sure our audience kind of understands like what makes the border so attractive. Like, what, what why is it like the, the sexiest story? I, I had somebody once told me like. Now I'm going to the border. I'm I'll here in Texas. You. And they said, you know, is it border porn? And I was like, it's, it's like, border porn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. There's something, that, something to that yeah. because it, for one thing, there's violence, That's true. which is just astoundingly terrible. There's money. There's cops chasing bad guys all over the place. There's intelligence agencies, our guys, on the other side doing secret squirrel stuff. Yeah. There's Mexican corruption. There are uh, regular just human interest stories of um, Americans who live and work on both sides that got caught up. There's humanitarian issues. There's humanitarian issues. There's just human stories that were just incredible yeah. stories. I mean, everywhere you look, you never you go down to the border then or now, and kick over any rock, and there's something squiggling under there. And it's a story. That. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, everything that you can imagine. So, is so in many ways, human it's, drama. you're never shortage of stories or interesting things to, to study or to tell, uh, as opposed to maybe you're covering the, well, before you were covering the law enforcement beat in Dallas or something like that, where there's murders, there's homicides, but it's also like traffic cops and, 
you know, going after, you know, simple everyday crime. Right. Um, but, I could see that. Yeah. But here's the thing is, you know, uh, because of my years in Dallas and, you know, we would hear all the time, I was, I was in the counterterrorism world mm-hmm. of, you know, the intelligence guys, the FBI guys that sourced up all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to hear while I was in Dallas, Hey, you know, there are Arabs crossing mm. the border. There are terrorists crossing that border. And I never could, when I was in Dallas, I couldn't get my hands around that. Mm. That was a sexy story mm-hmm. when I heard it as a tip, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't get people, if you dug in a little bit on that. Because you're covering the court cases at that time, right? Court cases and, and investigations. You're not going to the border. I wasn't going to the border. Yeah. Not, not up there. Um, and so... Uh, I decided I'm going to finally go down there and try to dig on that. What was the first border border city that you 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 started to dig into? Laredo. Laredo. Probably yeah. Laredo. Um, but you know, I was all over that border. There was, and all over Mexico, mm. um, with a translator and a photographer. Usually, mm. you know, or my photographer sometimes was the translator because I'm a gringo, man. I mean, yeah. that's the worst. But it's like, remember, I'd been all over the world already not speaking local languages. Yeah. So you used to work with translators. Always. Yeah. Had translators. So to me, Mexico is just one more country that I needed a translator. translator. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. So um, I went down there and um, I wanted to find out, is that Arab things coming over the border? Is that a true thing? And uh, before too long, I was neck deep in that. Yeah. And I ended up um, doing a five part series on, Special interest aliens. Oh, that, that was back that was then. the first time that I'd ever. What, what time heard. frame are we talking about? 2007. Wow. When did the SIA term get developed? 2004. Okay. okay so so just a few years it had been, that whole thing had been and in it, place. Was it a classified pro- program or was it? Parts of it were classified. Because the term wasn't really known back then. Nobody had ever heard of this. Yeah. Uh, I had never heard of it. Uh, but then before too long, uh, there were people that from my federal sourcing for my federal days that I was able to get a hold of, you know, you know, people endorse you as a trustworthy guy. Yeah. And before long, you're, you're actually talking to the secret squirrel guys that are in the middle of this Okay, good deal. ice guys, mm-hmm. ice. Um, and I'm not sure if they had HSI, is, but yeah. Is H is, is, SIAs, and we'll, we'll we'll unpack that term for those that aren't familiar with it. But you think does that does that get does that become uh, a lexicon around the same time that ICE is developed? Is that kind of like an ICE term? It's it's a CBP term, CBP. but it was developed by the intelligence community. Okay, for CBP. Okay, it was a CBP program mm-hmm. started in two thousand four. That's Customs, Customs and Border Patrol. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the entire intelligence community was deeply involved in this thing. See, right. And that was all secret stuff. Yeah. So this is kind of part of the, the global war on terror, what it used to be called back in the day. You know? Yeah, because, I mean, yeah. they were expecting more follow-on attacks, and they assumed that the border would be like, oh, we would think of that. They would yeah. think of that. Who wouldn't do that? Yeah, of course. Right? Yeah. So they, they stood up programs. Mm. Um, I ended up traveling, uh, finding a Rockies crossing. Okay. Lots of Iraqis were crossing. I ended up, I interviewed like six different immigration lawyers. That's how I got at that story. And I asked each one of them, what do you got from the Middle East? And they all had 
you know, 15 people different from Pakistan. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. This has never been reported before. So uh, I convinced the paper to let me uh, travel to Syria. Mm. Um, uh, that was my first time to Syria, Jordan. I'd been to Jordan before. Uh, tracking how Iraqis were making their way. I tracked their trails all the way around through uh, Panama, Darien Gap. I were, they, wrote, were they doing Darien Gap back yeah, then? Yeah, yeah. Oh. That was the first time I wrote all about the Darien Gap. Oh, okay. Um, and then... Um, <clears throat> up through uh, Guatemala. I went to Guatemala. I went to Nicaragua. I tracked, I, I interviewed, I found uh, uh, people that were, um, I was really just tracing this one Iraqi story and confirming it all the way mm. along. And I told, I, in a five-part series uh, on special interest aliens, which won a National Press Club Award for oh, foreign correspondence at the time. Nobody thought it was too crazy. Is this for that San Antonio paper? Yeah. 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 Um, won a National Press Club Award for the gun running, gun smuggling piece too. And, uh, you know, I mean, everything about that, the border was just, you know, great professionally. And then that, those stories, especially that one, mm-hmm. caught the attention of a lot of um, intelligence community types, FBI types, and, and including... Um, the the freshly appointed head of Department of Public Safety. When was that uh, created? When was that, the Texas Department of Public Safety? Oh, that's been around forever. It's okay. a huge. Uh, I mean, that's been around. The Texas Rangers have been in are part of that. Um, you know, it's been it's a billion dollar agency, massive. I think what a lot of times people don't realize is that text the size of Texas, right? It's like a country essentially because yeah. you guys have a GDP that's I don't know what the number is, but it's big. Uh, your trade relationship with Mexico is like literally international trade. It's the hub of U.S. trade with Mexico, which is our largest trade partner. And Texas, I think, uh, necessitates and has a national security infrastructure almost at the level of a country. Uh, uh, that's right. And it's well-funded. Um, they had, at that time, they had um, one of the biggest fusion centers, a fusion Fusion centers was a, a post 9-11 yeah. construct. Of, all source fusion centers, right? Yeah. Right. FBI, ICE, all the feds, lo- state, locals, everybody all under one roof so that they could share in a way that they weren't before 9-11, which caused 9-11. This was seen as the kind of the solution. And so um, after those stories came out, um, there just came a time uh where it just worked out that when I got the call, Hey, do you want to do Intel? I was like, well, what's the job? Well, you're going to do terrorism stuff. We need somebody who's got your, we we're looking for unconventional people with unconventional backgrounds. Okay. Uh, which I guess I qualify. No, you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would you say know, you qualify. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, Anyway, so I said, yeah, and I, you know, first they were, I was, they were wondering, can you pass a background check and yeah. security check? Because you know, not all journalists are all, you know, that clean, really. Uh, but yeah, of course. And so um, I went over, I went there, did the. Background. Is the clearance that the Texas Department of Public Safety use the same as federal clearances? No, no. Uh, I had to do a separate federal okay. clearance. You know, where they brought the people in and they're. Okay. Yeah, doing, you know. So you can, you can access uh, a skiff from a federal law enforcement. Oh yeah. We had one. Okay. Okay. There. Yeah. So, so, so you're able to access classified information at the national level, but also 
yes. connect that to what you're doing at the state level. Yeah. I had federal clearance through DHS. Okay. Um, I mean, cause you can't do that job unless you can talk to, if you can course, you yeah. share anything with anybody, if you don't have your clearance. Um, and you know, I did that for another nine years, mm. uh, to almost 10 years. So I gave up journalism and just sort of disappeared, but had many incredible experiences doing that work. Um, can you give us a few of them just give us, that you can share? Well, um, you know, for one thing, you, after a couple, a few years, they, they gave me my own unit and they okay. said, you know, create something here that is going to help the IC, help the FBI's, because we had our own proprietary databases from just being cops mm -hmm. on the street. Uh, we have a very diverse ethnically and religiously uh, population in Texas yeah. with a lot of terrorism, mm. a lot of terrorism cases. I knew that from, mm. you know, Dallas. The journalist days, yeah. Yeah. And uh, you would be surprised what we have. Mm. And all the agencies want what we have. But somebody has to be there to traffic cop it. So you guys have basically the local information which oftentimes in a enterprise such as the IC, the intelligence community, it's the is the best way to validate what may you might think may be happening nationally, right? To get on the ground and see what's happening locally. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And you know, one thing about about the job was that it was it was terrorism. It was Islamic terrorism. Mm -hmm. And it was about those people that we know of, you know, DPS isn't just cops, highway patrol. We had CID mm. who had snitches all over the place. Mm. And I was in the intelligence and counterterrorism division. And we had people that were just dedicated to working informants, our informants, who often had not just criminal information for the case, but they had information overseas. Mm. They had stuff that was of use that we wouldn't have used in a criminal case, but had to be extracted and um, packaged for for our partners. And it worked all different ways. That, Is there a notable case that you could talk about of a known jihadist group? Um, well, let me probably the best way to put that is that you know we were frequently brought into active. FBI counterterrorism cases. Okay. Uh, where we, you know, we did, we did social media extraction. Mm. Uh, we did, we, we, there were things that we could do that they couldn't do or just needed extra bandwidth. And so we were brought into cases. We worked, we worked terrorism cases investigations as they were going with the agents, the mm -hmm. FBI agents uh, frequently. Um, we also initiated collection programs that were unique. For example, um, there came a time, I think it was like 210, 211, when uh, none of our FBI, we have six FBI offices here in Texas, the field offices, and none of them had informants in the Somali communities. Okay. So... Um, I concocted a, 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 a strategy to, um, to create 
informants in the Somali communities okay. that we had around here, which I'm not going to go. I can't yeah, of course. Yeah, go yeah. into that one, but we did things that, you know, ended up with um, Somalis busted and on our charges and then like, Hey, we, we've got a job for you. If you want to get out of this thing, yeah, yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. Of course. Yeah. Um, very successful. Um, we, um, one of the, one of the big programs that I spearheaded was, um, back to the special interest aliens because <clears throat> we had the border and we had, uh, what we call JOEX, which is a joint operation information center, seven of them all along the border, mm. uh, run by the Rangers, Texas Rangers. And we had Intel working out of those things. And we had these people, even though the, the broader world said it was a, uh, like some kind of a conspiracy theory or something that they weren't, there weren't really any of these people crossing. Even though I wrote a five-part series about of it, of course, yeah, uh, you know, is that? Some, let me ask you, just, not the backtrack, but was that the first journalistic piece on SIAs? It was one of them. One of them. Uh, I think the Associated Press actually did a a really good one. Yeah. It didn't get much attention, but I cited the heck out of yeah. it, and. They did good work. I, I um, interviewed the uh, one of the two reporters who was on that. And back but, then, with the SIAs was what in the dozens, maybe a hundred. No, we we would have probably three or four thousand a year across. Was oh, that right? It was that high even That's back right. in two thousand seven. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's always there's always like a steady several thousand. Okay. Per year. And uh, terrorists. Yeah who were watch listed then just like they are now. We talk about it openly here now, but in those days, my job was, you know, the governor, it was Governor Perry and then Abbott later. But what would happen is there'd be a big report, terrorists crossed, um, and it would fall to me and that they needed to know right now whether there was any truth to this. The media was knocking down their doors. Mm -hmm. The state legislators were knocking down the doors. What's going on? So you would go brief the governor? My job was, no, I never briefed the governor, but uh, my job was to brief the director. Of course, yeah. Who then would brief the governor. But, but you know, in order to do that, you know, we, we, I had to go to all the CIA and the mm -hmm. FBI and all the people that would, and, and uh, we had connections in Mexico too, mm -hmm. uh, and even further. I was going to ask you that. So, cause, cause uh, I imagine you have some ability to do foreign source operations you don't have to get into the details of that, but that's, I imagine would be the overlap with the federal, right? Because they're doing that all the time. So that, that that's, that's right. your ability to connect, which seems like it would be a model that every state should have. Uh, obviously not every state's going to have the resources that Texas have, but it seems to be something that's more relevant today than ever because the border, and now this is, jump into today because I think a lot of this experience even during that period to today is what led to this. That's right. uh, and so this, this so everyone uh, could see what I'm holding here. Uh, this is Todd Benzman's first book. It's called America's Covert Border War. And so I met Todd right around this period when you were writing this and then you published it and we've covered it before. Um, but what, what really caught my attention to this book wasn't just the SIAs because I had heard about it. I hadn't really dabbled much in it. Um, but was more, more than anything is you covered that there's a secret war happening along the border. It's been happening for a long time. This kind of post 9-11 environment where there are spooks, spies, secret scrolls, and uh, basically there's uh, illicit actors, everything from criminals to terrorists that are figuring out how to work the border, right? So t take us into the, how all that came into this book that you, you post. And was this 2019? 2021. 20, oh, wow. Is that recent? Okay. Right. 2021. 
yeah. So, I mean, eventually um, I, I did a um, uh, DHS sponsored me to um, get another master's degree. I had one in journalism from uh, university of Missouri, but now I'm in the Intel business. So I figured I needed a, so I did a thesis on uh, based on public records mm-hmm. Uh, even though I was working on this in my day job, uh, we had people like my whole team was working on this. We were part of the covert border war. Uh, there was a community of people across military uh, intelligence, uh, the IC, and just a regular in, intelligence community, uh, DIA, ICE, CBP. Everybody had a piece of this thing. And we were part of it. And so I had, I knew that there was, I knew that there were these things happening. And in about when I left the state in 2018 to take my job with Center for Immigration Studies, which took notice of my thesis on SIAs, which is how I ended up with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a panel with them and then they were like, wow, that's a good thesis. How would you like you know, yeah. to use that? But um um, one of the things that they said uh, is, you know, we'd like you to write a book on on this stuff. And I wasn't really going to, I guess I was going to try to do it. I didn't really have a time. But then Donald Trump came out and said, um, God, you know, there's terrorists coming in with these caravans. Yeah, yeah, I remember this. Yeah, And the entire world of media and punditry just like, uh, you know, just La- laughed, at it, yeah. laughed at it. You know, you know, do you, do you remember, and, I think it was in a debate when he started talking about coyotes and nobody knew what he meant. They thought he actually meant the animal. Remember this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so I remember hearing that, and anyone that's done anything in Mexico knows what a coyote is, right? But apparently, like, there's a broad population, the most of the population, I think, hadn't heard of these terms, hadn't heard of SIAs, hadn't heard of uh, extracontinental migrants, haven't heard of coyotes. And at that point, I realized that there, and this is where I think really your book really illuminated, because I hadn't seen or hadn't read anyone that captured this kind of uh, covert war that was taking place where there's a common knowledge about how terrorists are permeating the border. And it's not even a debate at this point uh, among IC folks and law enforcement and, and even defense because DOD has an arm in a lot of this as well. But in the general public, in the maybe in the even more the legacy media, it was almost like they never heard of it before. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember when when the Trump controversy blew up when he said, oh, there's terrorists and bad guys coming in with the caravans. Um, I got pissed off. I mean, I remember seeing um, on CNN or something, you know, special interest aliens, they were doing this mm-hmm. whole fact, you know, here's what the story is with that. Um, and I remember just going, I can't believe this is on the media like this. Yeah, but yeah. in a way where they're debunking yeah. what we were doing. For like for more year, than 10 years. For yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I just couldn't, it pissed me off, honestly. Oh, I and get I it. It's like, you know, they don't, nobody knows what's, what happened here when nine 11 happened. And in the years following that, there were huge, uh, you know, breakout investigative pieces about programs that we did rendition. Yeah. Um, waterboarding, uh, you know, all these programs that we did that won Pulitzer Prizes for um, the journalists that broke the stories about the programs. But these programs never got written about. And I thought, you know, it's time to, why not write a book exposing the programs, the programs yeah. that, that and show that it, this is not BS. What Trump said was absolutely 
he was briefed. Yeah, of course. He didn't yeah. just come up with no. That. Yeah, he got yeah. briefings. He got presidential briefings in the in the uh, so, situation room or whatever on on what was going on there. And I had just I was fresh out. Yeah, uh, and I knew what we were doing and what was going on, and I knew what he was saying was absolutely true. So I that was really the catalyst, catalyst for yeah. me to just say I am totally going to write that book. Yeah. I'll base a chunk of it on my open source thesis that I did. Uh, I'll base it. Uh, there's a lot in that book where I go right up to the edge of where I think I'm allowed to be, you know, um, in terms of, in terms, in terms of classified of, information. And right. Classified uh, programs, I never, yeah. I never crossed it. Did it have to go through t uh, Texas Department of Public Safety to do like a review? I offered it to yeah. them and they said, we don't have a policy about that. So okay. the answer is no, but I, I, I did offer. I said, yeah, yeah, Cause yeah. I'm going to be talking about things that I did. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, you know, we trust that you're not going to, you know, like leak something that's you're not going uh, yeah, to screw yeah. anything. Although I did, I did get in trouble with the uh, DIA for talking about <laughs> what, what we, what we were doing. Together. Everybody gets in trouble with the DIA. Yeah. mad at me. So, no, I wanted to, so I feel like that's kind of how me and you connected because I we share the same experience in many respects. You know, I'm not as much on the border. You've done a lot more than I have. I also spent most of my time in the Middle East as a Marine. But the interesting thing about this is that that 2018, that's my foray also into the border because uh, I was in Guatemala when the caravans happened uh, and they formed from Honduras and they went. I, th I remember this kind of very vividly because it was 180 Hondurans in October 12th and then October 20th, eight days later, it was 7,000. And anyone with a common sense uh, knows that that's, this isn't, that's not organic. That doesn't just happen. Like you don't just wake up one day and start migrating in the thousands, like uh, the bad food, bad weather, like no war, no natural disaster. And I remember the exactly uh, President Trump uh, saying that there's, yes, he said there might, there's Middle Easterners in this and everybody ridiculed him. The all international press went on him. And, and I was in Guatemala and, and, and we wrote, I've been writing a report about this, but it was, the interesting thing was, the uh, extracontinentals or the SIAs, they were traveling behind the caravan. That's they were right. traveling in vehicles. And yes. then I was like, there's like a logistical network here that's moving them. And that's why they didn't see them because they're in the main body. They're with all the migrants in the shelters and stuff like, we don't see any Middle Easterns. I was like, do you think a terrorist is just gonna present himself and say, hello, my name is Mr. Al-Qaeda. I'm here, part of this caravan. And I, and I thought it was like very sloppy journalism for many people. And not trying to figure out the logistics because it starts with the premise that this is not organic because you don't just go from 180 to 7,000. And then the next logical question is who's creating the logistics, right? And so I think that dawned on me that this is there's a weaponized aspect of this migration. And it seems like that dawned on you that, and, and more than that, that pissed you off because it kind of discredited the work you've been doing for your whole career. See, I've been looking at this for, for a decade or more, two, more two decades. And this is taking place, and and I think I think that in many respects woke up America to the fact that you know the media doesn't have this right, that they're not looking at this seriously, and it's going to take other uh, I wouldn't even call them journalists, just other reporting from experts, from other journalists, from other places that aren't from the legacy media that are going to have to break the story open. I mean, I I kind of feel like the the onslaught of media and punditry that happened at that point actually left the country thinking that, that, that it was a myth. Mm. I like, I don't think that it, I mean, there might've been people who were- No, but like, well, like people like me and you, like others. Right. No, you're right. Like the, the narrative was strong. Yeah. And, and, and like, I remember I ended up 
doing something with Fox News and Catherine Herridge, who's a good reporter, now with CBS, but was then in Fox News. She put a good story up, but it was like one story. There was like another here, two, three here, but there's like hundreds of stories about the humanitarian crisis, the right. cruel governments. No, you're hundred percent right. The narrative, we didn't win the narrative battle on that. The narrative no. battle was lost, but I felt like it woke a lot of people up. Like I'll just use myself as an example. I wasn't a hundred percent focused on the border. I'm focused. I'm on Latin America. So I'm focused on Latin America. Right, right. Sure. But I was like, okay, I need to start looking at, you know, everything that's happening in the region that I pay attention to and how that's affecting the Southern border. You're a border guy and you've been doing the border for a long time and you've done international uh, affairs, but you're probably like, I need to, I know what's going on and I need to start to document this. And then even going further into Latin America and, and, and figuring out what's going on, which you've already spent time there. Tell us a little bit about your time. Cause I want to jump a little bit into uh, Hezbollah, uh, because that's another thing that we we have in common. We both looked at Hezbollah networks in Latin America, and I remember one of your early pieces. And and this was this this was pre uh, America's border war, the work that you did in Nicaragua about Iran. And- oh yeah, yeah, that was back in um, two thousand seven. I managed to get Hearst to send me down to Managua, and you know that was a a pretty good adventure. Uh, but you know, from my Dallas days. Mm-hmm covering terrorism is where I first kind of, you know, I had a familiarity with Hez. We Mm. had cases uh, I'd written about them. Um, The, the impetus there was the election of Daniel Ortega. Yeah. 2007. Yeah. And that next to him at his inauguration was Ahmadinejad. I remember. Yeah. Uh, And then Ahmadinejad was making promises to Ortega that if you let us, we're going to have very close relations and uh, we're going to build a dry canal from uh, Monkey Point from the Caribbean to the uh, Pacific. Pacific, yeah. And we're going to invest all this money and you're going to do great and it's going to be a great partnership. And I looked at that remembering all, all I knew about Argentina and the tri-border region. And I was like, this is a great story. And I just sat there for a while waiting for somebody to come in and go, wait, what, you know, what is Iran doing? That's close. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's people were, were, were thinking Chavez Yeah. and lots of stories, lots of coverage, Venezuela. lots of attention and analysis about Chavez and, and, and his relationship with Iran but here we're now a couple borders away yeah. and you've got them coming in almost kind of waiting for somebody to do something and nobody did. Mm-hmm. So I just pitched it and I said, Hey, you know, just send me down there. I, I, this is, you know, here's why it's important. You went to Managua. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, I went down there and I was trying to find the, um, the Iranian consul yeah. and I found it. Without that, that was before trouble. they had the embassy. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They had a compound. There. Yeah. Uh, and you could you could see it was um, uh, gated. It had a big tall metal gate all around. It had a, a a squad of Nicaraguan soldiers out front, and you could see the tip of the Iranian flag just yeah. poking up above the top there. And I thought, well, the thing to do here is to knock the gate and try to get an interview with the ambassador. Uh, how did that go? <laughs> yeah, it didn't go. So, for, so they were very polite. Uh, yeah. You know, I would knock on the gate and then the little sliding thing would come open and I would explain who I was and ask for the ambassador to meet me and receive me. And they were very polite. You know, he, he absolutely wants to meet you, but today's not a good day. Come back tomorrow. Yeah. 
And it went like that for three or four days. And finally I realized it's not going to happen. He's always out at lunch. <laughs> right. So I figured, well, I might as well get some photos of uh, this place. And I climbed up on the rooftop of um, a neighboring business with a telephoto lens and I'm on the top and I'm just shooting the entire interior of this place to the extent that I could. And um, then a, a, a couple days later, I went back and tried it one more time before I went out to Monkey Point mm -hmm. and on the, on the coasts and, and uh, did more report. I was in there probably for a couple of weeks, but mm. um, one of the Nicaraguan soldiers who I'd kind of gotten friendly with gave me his phone number his cell phone number, the ambassador. So I called him. He was furious. How did you get this telephone number? <laughs> and then one of those kind of things. Yeah. It's just extremely angry and upset that I'd done that. Yeah, I did a big takeout, big piece on on Iran and Nicaragua that I think is to to this day the only piece. Yeah, I mean, Iran, ever did a, a piece on it. Iran's presence in uh, Managua, Nicaragua has grown. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, I think want to say last year, it might have been a little bit before, so uh, you're familiar with the army attack in 1994. So one of the individuals, or there's others, but one of the individuals that's been accused of being a, a, an orchestrator of that attack, a Iranian official, he was from the IRGC back then. He's now a vice president of Iran. He's the vice president for economy. And he, uh, going back to Ortega in inaugurations, you know, Ortega has been elected now, I think for the third time, if not the fourth time in an illegitimate election. Um, now he, instead of Ahmadinejad, who's out, of power now in Iran, uh, Motion Reza is his name. Motion Reza uh, was sitting next to uh, uh, Daniel Ortega in his most recent quote unquote inauguration. So yeah. a, a lot has changed, and, and, and but at the same time, not much has changed. Right. So it's right. still the same thing. Um, but yeah, no, Iran's very much entrenched in Nicaragua. Uh, but let's, let's morph this over to Hezbollah because, um, you know, there's a lot of reporting now, uh, you know, with the, the war um, against Israel uh, with uh what's happened in Gaza, Hamas. But I think everyone that's in the counterterrorism community knows that the big threat there is Hezbollah, right? Hamas is, you know, they clearly they're a terrorist group. They've shown that they can create a lot of carnage in, in, in a very brutal manner. But Hezbollah is even more than a terrorist group in many respects. They are a terrorist group, but they're also like a mafia, right? They're dealing in organized crime. They have money laundering apparatus. Obviously, they have a political party and they have some social movement in Lebanon, but Lebanon's a disaster right now. But Hezbollah is this kind of big, big, and I guess the best way to put them is they're like the special forces of Iran, right? They have Iran's abilities to advance in Nicaragua and other places is really dependent on Hezbollah. Take us through your journey of Hezbollah. How did, how did you, I'm sure back in your journalist days, you were looking at it. I'm sure you're looking at it also when you were in, uh, uh, as an intel manager in the Texas Department of Public Safety. You, you mentioned Hezbollah in your book, uh, in America's Covert Border War. Uh, give us your journey a little bit through Hezbollah and how you see it today. Well, I, th I think Hezbollah is the most dangerous uh, U.S.-designated terrorist group in the world. Yep. They're the most uh, dangerous to us directly and the homeland, but also to all of our interests and all of our allies uh, because the way they've structured themselves so you know deviously, really, and, and from their point of view, cleverly. Yeah. Um, they have, obviously, you know, you've written about this a lot. I've written about it a lot. I write about Hezbollah all the time because I regard them as, you know, one of the foremost uh, global threats. Yeah. They're just, and, they, and they are. Uh, they are capable. They are willing. They're ideological. 
and they're run by, uh, they're, they're essentially a state actor. Yeah. Uh, and um, that's, that is, uh, you know, their modus operandi is to permeate uh, operatives throughout Latin America. Uh, as you know, and yeah. you've, you know, you're probably half of most everybody who's watching this. You're, yeah. They're watching your podcast. They know this, but um, maybe what people know less about Hezbollah is, well, let me let me tell you about the journey first. I mean, when I was with DPS, Texas DPS, on an intel basis, um, our troopers started pulling over uh, guys driving just auction purchased cars. Yeah. Uh, and they were watch listed and the same guys. And when, when one of our troopers pulls over a watch listed guy, it flags and comes straight to me. Yeah. Uh, and so we started noticing the same guys are buying cars at auction and they're, they're getting speeding tickets cause they're rushing down to the Galveston Island mm-hmm. Uh, to our ports in the port of Houston to put them on barges for Benin, Africa. Mm. And uh, they're shipping them left and right out of Texas. Um, it turns out that there's this massive DEA case. Yeah, Cassandra. Yeah. It's, the, it's Operation Cassandra. Yeah. Well, um, we, we recognized that we had patterns in individuals and we opened uh, intel cases on them okay. and got involved in Operation Cassandra in a deep way. Uh, the DEA was, uh, and my whole team was on this, and the DEA was um, only able, because of the prosecutors, and this was during Obama too, they had to cut it off at a certain uh, level of activity. And what that is, was we all know now is, it was a massive intercontinental money laundering operation yeah, yeah, run was, by Hezbollah, yeah. moving vehicles, Af- wired money coming in. We got all the, we, we know all about the wired money and how much and everything um, being stored in the form of automobiles shipped to Africa Af- and resold in Europe. And then the money going ultimately to Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, back to the origin, but, but anyway, it was this huge circular thing. They busted a bunch of guys. We were involved in that. Um, and then, you know, that, that, I think that to this day is one of the biggest trade-based money laundering cases in history. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And it's still going on. Yeah, they, no, they no. never rolled them all up. They couldn't, they didn't have the bandwidth to do it. We were trying to do what we were trying to do was state charges mm. on the lower level guys. And I, I won't talk too much more about that, but, you know, we did have, I did have direct experience with uh, Hezbollah activities here, but more so, uh, every FBI office that I dealt with had a Hezbollah team. Mm. All they did out of Houston, Dallas, and I'm not going to say too much more about that either, except mm. that that I was privy to their activities. Yeah. So you, yeah. you, you, got, you got privy to the fact that Hezbollah is the, 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 the top of the top, the tier one. Uh, they're, they're a tier one threat that that really the counterterrorism community knows that when Hezbollah is going to engage in something, it means serious business. And we have to be very vigilant of that. Um, but take that now to the border, you know, um, to the work that you're doing now, because, you know, now and we haven't got into your second book yet. But essentially, 
you know, after you publish your first book, the second book is really the Biden's border crisis, right? It's what we turned it. We actually did a webinar once about that. Um, so why would you call it Biden's border crisis? Uh, obviously, the last, uh, was it three and a half years, three years, has been unprecedented in numbers of encounters and apprehensions. Nothing, I mean, I, I kind of want to just ask you, did you ever fathom that this was going to be this high, like the numbers were going to get this bad? And then, and then just take us to a little bit about where you see the border crisis today and then how does Hezbollah fit into it given all that's going on in, in, in the Middle East? Sure. That's a big question the way you uh, pose it, but um, I'll just, let me put it this way um, that, you know, we've had, we've always had like, you know, spikes and peaks and things that would, uh, that would, um, it, it, that would, um, draw people in larger numbers than normal into the uh, across the border but in 2020 2019 2018 2019 during the camp the democratic campaigns there was this huge reaction against trump as uh especially his central campaign promises which was all about illegal immigration right that was his thing with build a big beautiful wall and all that there's a reaction against that powerful reaction on the left for that. And so as a result, every presidential candidate in the democratic primaries was out there uh, on the stump campaign stump talking about how they were going to in welcome all immigrants. They didn't distinguish between illegal or uh, legal. They just said, we are going to, we are a nation of immigrants we are not going to detain people like he did. We are not going to deport people like he did. Uh, we're going to um, give free health care. Remember the everybody raise your hands yeah. if you're going to give free health care. 15 candidates, all of them. And if you read Elizabeth Warren's uh, immigration uh, policy. policy and all of them, all of their immigration policies read the same. Open, it's like basically an open border open policy borders. consensus here. They said out loud on international debate stages that were televised around Latin America. Mm-hmm. So I'm down in Tapachula in February of 2020. It's on the Mexico-Guatemala border. Yeah, just yeah. 30 clicks north. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Tapachula. The first time I went to Tapachula was in 2007 for the oh, SIA wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. Series, you know, and they're 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 on these uh, the, the inner tubes. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Now everybody goes there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, I'm like, take a picture of me on one of these inner tubes. This is cool. <laughs> um, There's a lot of contraband that goes back and forth with what Tucumán, right? Well, Guatemala. Yeah, yeah. right. Tucumán. Um, but but um, no, you're talking about how the Democrats are creating this oh, like open border so narrative, I, and I, you're in Tapachula hearing so about go, all this. I go down to Tapachula to do a different story about the national, the Mexican National Guard deployment. Of course, yeah, uh, and how it was working so well, mm-hmm. and you know, Trump was claiming success, and it seemed like it was there was a lot that the numbers were way down. So I went down there thinking that there'd be nobody there. The Mexicans were bottling them up. We were deporting them back to Honduras on buses. They were air flighting them out. They were, the Mexicans were getting rid of it. So um, I go down there and my very first day is there are throngs pouring over the border, mm. throngs coming in. I'm like, why are you people coming? Mm. They've remained in Mexico. Um, 
uh, Title 42 hadn't happened. The pandemic was the next month or two away, but they were pouring over. And when I asked them why, they said, because one of those Democrats is going to win. Oh, they knew. And they're going to let us in. Mm. And we're going to go get position now and then wait and be there on the day of uh, that when one of them wins. Now, at that time, Biden had not been um, nominated. But to them, it didn't matter which of them got nominated. All 15 had the same policy. All 15 had the same policy. They were reversing everything the orange man did and letting everybody in. So I wrote a big piece about it. It's like, wow, this was because it was a surprise. And from that point on, I knew that we were going to have a massive influx on Inauguration Day. It was obvious. Yeah. I had interviewed uh, tons of them all week long or for 10 days. Uh, and um, I went back subsequent to that, and sure enough, and I found it again. They're all pouring in. They're waiting. They're coming into the northern cities. They're waiting uh, for a Democrat to win. And then when uh, Biden was nominated, uh, they were saying the same thing. Biden's going to win. All the polls are showing. They're smart. Migrants are smart. <laughs> They're like, they, they picked it better than probably a lot of like poll experts. They did. But, yeah. They knew. They knew what was going to happen. Yeah. And, uh, or at least it was a, enough of a percentage chance that they were willing to gamble yeah. to wait for a few months. Um, so, yeah, I remember in uh, November or October of 2020, I wrote a story called The Biden Effect, mm. where I predicted that there was going to be a mass migration crisis on an order that nobody has ever seen before. Okay. It was obvious. And so after the election, um, I went down there and they were pouring in. Mm. It was, it was like days after the election. Days after the election, they were. It was just even with the controversy of you know during the election, there was like you know lawsuits and this. Yeah, it didn't matter because on inauguration day they switched off all those policies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they turned on some new ones mm. uh, that that um, took advantage of something that the Mexican government did secretly, which was to pass a law. Uh, 48 hours after the American election that required the Mexican uh, INM, the Immigration Service, to release all family units from all 58 detention centers, mm. uh, but not until 60 days later, so that the transition period, there was 10 days left of Trump. Okay. They passed the, they had the, it was called, it was not called Ron. It was uh, Lopez, Lopez Obrador's policy, or uh, Morena. 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 The political party, yeah. Was, those are the guys that did it. Yeah. They passed this. They didn't say a word to anybody. There was no media at all. Mm. The gates opened 60 days after the U.S. election and thousands of family groups poured out. Mm and headed straight for the border and were there waiting. They had 10 days to wait. And on inauguration day, the Biden administration said, we are going to open exemptions in Title 42, because that was in place at that point, for the family groups. Mm -hmm. It just so happened they were there. Mm. <laughs> so A lot of coincidences. <laughs> yeah, there's no coincidence. Yeah, that not. was to yeah. me, it was, uh, but, it, but the point so, is, is that, that's why I call it Biden's border crisis. Border crisis because the numbers went 
like this into the ionosphere yeah, yeah. from that point on. Yeah, I mean, you, I remember you saw it. January numbers were high. February, I'm talking about 2021. Uh, January, February, March. It was just like it kept climbing, climbing, and every year was every month was like a record breaking month. Yeah, uh, until by the end of the year, it was the most in U.S. history. Most in U.S. history. Well, and until then, the next year. Until the next year, <laughs> yeah. and then that was the most, and then this year is the most in yeah. U.S. history, yeah. and it's just stair-stepping escalation in the millions and millions of uh, people. It's absolutely astounding what they did. And he, it, it's it's not, it wasn't bad policy or failed policy. It was purposeful. By design. It was designed yeah. by smart people, yeah. lawyers, political appointees, uh, people that knew exactly what had to be done in order to, uh, to bring in the most people possible within the confines of title 42 until they could get rid of title 42. And then it was everyone. Let me ask you a question. So what is, would you believe is the motivation behind uh, the Biden administration's uh, by design border policies to bring in mass migration into the United States? Is it, a subversive effort because of, you know, the way the administration maybe co-opted? Is it just failed ideology or, or like kind of a, a, a bad ideology that tends to think that, you know, open borders is a good thing and that we need to just integrate the world? What, what, what do you think is the motive behind all this? So I dedicate a long drawn out chapter to this, chapter four, uh, to the question of like, why did they do this? Who did this? And why did they do that? And um, the this quick summary is that they're, they're, these are ideologues that they brought into DHS, State Department, all the agencies, all the agencies of DHS, border, border agencies, um, and the White House advisor, the Domestic Policy Council, all of those were filled with people. They were filled with people who came directly from the NGO, the constellation of, of very, very far left NGOs, open borders NGOs that profit by the head. Okay. Right? They, they often get contracts, government contracts that they get um, uh, donations, you know, look how we've helped the little children and that sort of mm. thing. And the families, these poor families, it's an industry. It's an industry like, like the defense industry. Yeah, like it's and, a, what do you call it? The Im immigration or the migrant industrial complex. That's what I call it. Yeah. I actually call it the, um, migrant advocacy industrial complex. complex. And, you know, Eisenhower warned about the defense one. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of theories about, you know, oh, they're bringing in voters, the yeah. Democratic voters, or the, 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 there's a, um, but these, these uh, people are really extreme fringe uh, people from a, from a world that most Americans know nothing about. Yeah. That most, that, that mainstream Democratic Party coalition uh, people, have always kept in the bottle mm. with a cap screwed on tight, but they got, they unscrewed the cap <laughs> and they all got out and they took over. <laughs> and, and they went into all the heads of the agencies. Right, exactly. yeah. um, those people are still running the show, mm. the portfolio, the immigration mm. portfolio. And I believe that they're doing it for money. Mm. 
And I do believe that there is an ideology behind this, a really uh, odious uh, kind of ideology that that no mainstream Democrat would ever countenance in in just a few years ago. They, I mean, they, Bill Clinton, uh, Obama was called the deporter in chief. Mm-hmm. No deportation. It's it's the akin to um, you know a Nazi uh, Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no concentration camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is detention centers. Um, borderless world. Um, you know really extreme stuff that that just is nobody would ever take just came into it rose to power they rose to power so is it, it's in anyways a combination of this open borders ideology that's permeated in once fringe corners of society academia maybe some in policy but then now it's been propelled up to the highest positions of power combined with this industry this mega industry that's been created that creates incentives for officials, NGOs, and all kinds of elements to start to make a livelihood out of advocating for open borders. So you, you take the incentives, you take the ideology, you combine it, and, and I guess what your book, Overrun, is about is how this is all converged at this time, at this moment, with the Biden administration, uh, which is why we're seeing unprecedented numbers exactly and our borders it. collapsing. It's exactly it. And I mean- they have grown filthy fat rich on yeah. the billions of dollars in federal contracts that are no, no bid contracts that are just being every month being let to and these. You, you know what I see a lot too? And let me get your comment on this because it's not something that I really study, but I've observed it is a lot of uh, lawyers now getting into uh, preparing uh, cases for migrants, whether it's asylum cases, uh, whether it's visas, or whatever, but there, it's basically like, I, I'm going to equate this and maybe this might not come out coherent, but hopefully it does. Prior to the housing crisis, you started to see people that were real estate agents that had no business being real estate agents. They barely even had a high school diploma, but they're out there making money and they're like making good money, flipping houses and having all these real estate deals because uh, the banks were giving loans to people that didn't deserve loans because right. of the subprimes. Right. Uh, so I equate that to now because I'm seeing people that are like not really lawyers or have quasi lawyers or have lawyers in third world countries and they're coming out and they're saying, we have this great uh, company that's going to advise migrants. And it's a hustle. What I see is a hustle. I say a hustle and it kind of gives me this sense that this is part of that industry that's growing. And it's, not, and it's, and it, you know, for the, for the, you know, good lawyers out there or the good uh, professionals out there that actually have been for years trying to help migrants, it's contaminating their industry. It's turning their industry into basically a bunch of hustlers and, and, and crooks. I mean, is this real? I mean, I observe it. Yeah, this is, you could say this is kind of like uh, 2008 before the housing crisis and the meltdown. Yeah. Uh, we're, we are going to be hearing about this for years. Yeah. What happened here? Uh, we don't know at the right today. This is 2008. We don't know what happened yet that mm. they were, that they were bundling, uh, you know, a bad mortgage debt yeah, and, and reselling it at, at premium prices. And everybody's getting rich. Nobody knew. And that, you know, Lehman brothers and, you know, all of these, you know, companies that were like stalwart American companies all would go belly up over it and the country almost melted down, et cetera. But, but that is what's happening. There is, there is now that's the old journalist in me. Uh, I know that, you know, it's kind of the follow the money thing. Uh, but the ideology part of it is also fascinating because it's an international ideology. 
it's fringe, but you can find this all over Europe. Yeah. You can find it all over Latin America and you can, and it's the same, it's like jihad ideology, which we should get back to in a minute, yeah. but it's, it's, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference between Boko Haram and ISIS in ideology or Hamas or any of them. They have, you know, global caliphate under Sharia law, yeah, uh, you know, whatever. And so this ideology of uh, no borders, no detention, no laws, uh, no criminalization of, uh, you know, migration, mm-hmm. um, you know, just free flow of kind of a libertarian sort of, um, you know, as long as they're the ones that are getting to help manage it for a fee. Mm. But there is, there is an ideology about it um, that, that is kind of a global, you could say they're globalists. Um, I, I don't go so far as to say that it's, there's, there are puppeteers. Um, I know that a lot of people do say that there are these puppeteers, these like kind of elite I'm not discounting it. I just don't, I'm yeah. not as school. Well, you don't even that. really have to do that because, you know, anyone that knows anything about economics is really just aligning incentives. Once incentives yeah. are aligned, people end up just following their incentives and they create it. And I think of the things that you're saying, the one that really kind of resonates is the fact that there's an industry, you know, yeah. and when there's an industry, people are going to look to work and, you That's know, right. there's a job, there's money. Uh, a it's, lot of money. And the funny thing is, is it's borderline. I mean, I think the financial crisis, the housing crisis is a great metaphor because it should be illicit, but in many respects it's not because these NGOs, these lawyers, these law, they're, they're working within the margin of the law. But when the government is not trying to clamp down on that, but is actually incentivizing it, now you're creating this fake bubble, right? Of, of, of uh, mass migrant, uh, as you call it, with the migrant advocacy industrial complex, right? I think that's a great way to put it. Um, but let's, let's jump back into the jihadists because what that does uh, in many respects is it, it's overrun uh, the U.S. southern border. Uh, we don't have the capacity to deal with 10,000 encounters apprehensions per day. Uh, I have some of my good friends that were in the Marine Corps with me and other friends that are now working in CPB or in Border Patrol, and the morale is at an all-time low. They're overworked. They're underpaid. And so I see this kind of like this is an untenable situation. And now we're starting to hear again about Islamist terrorists, you know, coming through the southern border. I think this year, I don't have the number off the top of my head. 270, yeah, 270. So today, as, a, as we're talking. By the time this airs, it'll be 290, 290 yeah. or something. So, so more uh, known watch list terrorists are crossing the southern border than ever before. And that doesn't even get into the gotaways because I feel like like a good percentage of those gotaways are going to be like criminals and terrorists because you think about with this open border policy, even with like, you know that you're going to be let in, you still did prefer not to go through the official border crossings, be able to go through another direction. That's, that can't be a good, good, um, that's, that, I don't think that's a good, good, good precedent. Um, how do you see the terrorists exploiting the border today? Right. Um, and how is this going to, where, where are we going with, with all that? So I testified, I was invited to testify before Congress on September 14, uh, one of the subcommittees of judiciary. Just of in the, the house? Judiciary. Yeah, in the house. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I testified to is that the, the counterterrorism programs that are enumerated in my book, America's Covert Border War, and that I worked on in, as an intelligence uh, official, uh, are not viable anymore. 
Mm. They have, they are gone and, and they have been submerged complete for the first time since they were created in the a year or two after nine 11, they are as, as far as I can tell. And everybody that I know who's still back there, uh, that, that these are not happening anymore mm. because they are submerged under the volumes of humanity. Yeah. Uh, and particularly, remember I told you it used to be three or 4,000 SIAs a year. Mm. Well, one of the big programs I talk about here is, you know, we, we would go down and the, the FBI would interview face-to-face because they're coming in saying, my name's Mickey Mouse. And I don't have an ID or anything, but just believe me, my name's Mickey Mouse. And I was never involved in any of that stuff, terrorism stuff. And that's all we know. Uh, we might run a database check on somebody from um, Syria, but like, are the Syrians going to have a database that they share with us? Of course yeah. not. So we're, we're at zero. We're at square zero with people from, from, from most of these countries. So the most important thing that we could do is do an eyeball to eyeball interview for hours and days, if necessary, to find uh, hints of deception, of deception yeah. and uh, whatever else, you know, problems with their story and where they came from, et cetera. Um, sometimes they, they'll just admit, yeah, I was trained as a jihadi, but I'm not into that anymore. Mm. You know, stuff like that. But because of the, the, there, there's good reporting there. It's not publicly reported how many SIAs come across now, but the daily caller got a leak recently and said 75 that reported 75,000 SIAs came in in an eight month period in 2023. Wow. 75,000. 75,000. Uh, if we couldn't even get to three or 4,000, that tells you that that ain't happening. It's mm. just simply not happening. Uh, the, the, um, and SIA is the whole concept is designed. So law enforcement intelligence can basically do additional screening. Yeah. They're tagged. Yeah. They're, they're, tagged. they're tagged as being a slightly higher, uh, you know, Risk, they're, they're going to yeah. get a different treatment. But they're not the, terrorists. That doesn't mean they're yeah. terrorists. They could be fleeing terrorists. Yeah. But we, the problem is, is you know, my name's Mickey Mouse. That's the problem. Yeah. Um, but at, the, at, the, at those numbers, you can't do that. You can't do it. Yeah. We couldn't do it when it was 3,000 yeah. a year. We certainly can't do it when it's uh, 75,000 in less than a year. Uh, and people are coming in their military age people. I've met them. I've met Mauritanians. I've met Senegalese, uh, you name it. I've yeah. met all of them, Iraqis, Syrians. Um, and my belief is that when they cross, they're pretty much let through into the interior like any Honduran. Mm. They, they might run some additional classified databases quickly. But there's evidence I've written each time that, that this happens, I write about it, that we are screwing up all the stuff that we did. Uh, and so, for example, they let loose a Colombian who was on the FBI watch list by accident, and he ended up in Florida And before they realized it, and they had to do this operation and go track him down and get him. Um, and o DHS OIG produced an investigation on that. Mm. You could see in the investigation that everybody was too busy processing in the migrants to do their counterterrorism work. Mm. Um, there, there are cases that I've written about where um, a Yemeni, for example, was caught in Mexico. Mexico's just as busy, and they were a great counterterrorism partner of ours. Um, 
for years and years because they don't want somebody crossing through their territory to blow something up on ours so that we shut the border down and there's no remittance money coming. Of course, yeah. They have a, an intrinsic <clears throat> national interest in making sure that they cooperate big time with the U.S. intelligence, and they did. Mm. And I talk, I laud them, the Mexicans, on their CT in, in, in my book. But do you think it's still like that today? No, yeah, because I think the Mexicans are overwhelmed too. Yeah, and they're not able. And so there was a Yemeni, for example, who they caught. Um, the FBI, we we did our thing, we deported, but he came back and they caught him again. But this time, they just cut him loose, okay. and we don't know whatever happened to that guy. And mm. that's the kind of thing that would never in a million years have happened. Just a few years ago, it never would have happened. Something like that, and there are other cases of just weird releases yeah. of people on the FBI watch list of screw ups like that. And um, I think that with the numbers that are coming through and the numbers that are terrorists on the FBI watch list, suspected terrorists uh, that are um, that it's the, the threat is elevated. And I yeah. think the bad guys know about it. And the reason I say the bad guys know about it is because we have the benefit of a, of a major FBI uh, prosecution, investigation and prosecution out of Ohio recently. It just wrapped up in April of 2023. Guy's name is Shihab Ahmed Shihab Shihab. Okay. okay. Where's he's he from? A, he's an Iraqi. Okay. He came here as a, he overstayed his tourist visa and applied for asylum and immediately set about trying to import his old buddies from uh, ISIS over through Brazil through the dairy oh, gap with the case, yeah, over the southern border, uh, and he got caught. Thank God, but during the investigation, he talked about, well, you know, I have experience with this. I just brought two Hezbollah guys over. Uh, there's no more in the court record beyond that, but that we know that Hezbollah would also understand that this is a prime time. Yeah. to bring people over. I've met Lebanese. Lebanese are part of it. They're coming over. Venezuelan Lebanese uh, of Lebanese descent are coming over. We know that as well. Mm -hmm. People from Nicaragua are flooding the border. People from Venezuela are flooding the border. All of this is just insane. Mm. I mean, we when in my time, we would just be sphincters tightened up all over the place right now. Uh, I'm sure that they are among yeah. the people that are there. And so, you know, the thing about Hezbollah, it's not the only time that they brought people over the border. Yeah. There was a prosecution, a guy named Karani, and, and he came in in the trunk of a car in <laughs> Tijuana. <laughs> That's how he I got in. That, yeah. Um, so, so there's an interesting, because like the Hezbollah stuff, um, Hezbollah is multifaceted. You said it best. You said they're the number one, threat on the foreign terrorist organization list of designated terrorist organizations. But Hezbollah is very interesting because, you know, as opposed to ISIS and even Al Qaeda to some level who very much take credit for, even if they don't commit the attack, if they just like uh, something that blows up, they're like, we did it yeah, yeah. Uh, because they like, you know, it's part of the jihadist message. Hezbollah is not like that, right? They, they, they often don't talk about anything when Hez when something blows up and it's Hezbollah, almost nobody knew that it was going to blow up. No one really has any sense of what happened. And more importantly, and this is probably the, the thing that I've learned tracking Hezbollah networks for a long time now, is they get away with it. 
They rarely get arrested. They rarely get convicted. The Quranic case is an ex exemption. It's an outlier. And why it's such an important case? Because they actually not only prosecuted it. And that case was tied to Latin America because Karani was coming with some other Hezbollah guys that were operating in the Panama and some other places, Peru, that are part of a network that we everyone's, you're very familiar, familiar with, and just so the audience makes sure that they're familiar with, called Unit 910, right? Unit 910 or the External Security Organization or the International Jihad Organization, however you want to call it. But this is the intelligence clandestine arm of Hezbollah that are professionals. They're just as professional as any intelligence agency of the best ones you hear about in the world, including our own in the uh, United States, the CIA, or the Mossad from Israel, or the uh, SVR, or the, uh, what used to be the FSB from Russia. These are professionals at the highest levels. Yeah, I mean, you have to presume that they are. And we know, uh, I, I was telling you before we started about um, there were two cases in 2017 brought against Unit 910 guys, IJO. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure they call themselves 910 no, anymore. No, that, that was that was an FBI uh, yeah. designated yeah, term. Or the yeah. Israelis or somebody. Yeah. But um, we've got to call them IJO. But, uh, you know, they, they're clandestine plants. Mm -hmm. They talk about sleeper cells. Like, you know, I think there's even a, some, uh, some TV shows, you know, sleeper cell, sleeper cell or whatever. But um, these are the real deal. They actually are sleepers. Mm -hmm. And they put they put them in... New York, Dearborn, Michigan. LA, New York, California. I mean, Texas, Florida, Texas. They're they're all over the place, and uh, they are um, salaried, given stipends for health care, valued for their U.S. passport. Usually, trained to um, build target lists of uh, people that they can kill around them in their community. Usually, uh, IDF. Uh, dual citizens that are uh, or Israeli, Israeli. businessmen, um, physical infrastructure, uh, U.S. targets, and to stockpile the means by which to carry out attacks against their target list. And they travel. These court cases, there is a pair of them. Um, Ali Karani and a guy named Debek. Samar al-Debek. Samar al-Debek, yeah. And what was really unusual about this is I think the U.S. government wanted the American public to know the extent of the danger here. And they, they put into the, the, the court files FBI 302s, which are the, the end report of interrogations with your suspects, um, with very slight redactions, by the way, there's a few little blackened uh, spots on them. But from the 302s, you learn from the court in these court cases just how extensive their training was and their preparation, and they're waiting for an order mm. from either Beirut or Tehran or Beirut through Tehran to attack. They are ready to go, and they're all over, as you know. Latin America. I think they just popped one in um, Brazil. There were some in Brazil, and I think they popped one in Peru. And oh yeah, there's the there's Bolivia, the, Bolivia they caught them there, and Colombia, Colombia, yeah. and they're they're all over the place. And they're everything. I think like Paraguay, Chile. Well, as far as like arrest, the Peru case is interesting because I actually uh, was an expert witness that case, and this is oh. this this is a this is like a clear cut. Uh, Hezbollah, uh, Unit 19 IJO operator, 
operative. He wasn't a logistics guy. He wasn't a financier. He wasn't a facilitator or supporter. He was an operator, uh, intelligence operator who came into Peru. Um, and this case dragged on. And fundamentally, the big weakness, and so he got acquitted. He got convicted of immigration fraud because he had a fake passport said he was from Sierra Leone. Uh, so that he served six, year, six years in the Peruvian prison because of that. But the real reason why he got off the first time and then the second time was because in Peru, the magistrates and the judges had no idea what Hezbollah was. Like you asked them what Hezbollah is, they're like, what is, is that a political party? We think that we Googled it. It looks like it's a political party in Lebanon. <laughs> and had no clue what that was. And I think that that is something that Hezbollah has been a master at, at kind of, as I was alluding to before, different than ISIS and um, Al-Qaeda is being very, very secretive. Uh, uh, like they, they, people know who they are. They're out there. They're obviously, they are actually a political party in Lebanon, but that IJO, the International Jihadist Organization, that clandestine arm, it's almost invisible to me. So when, when they caught this guy, I'm sitting there like, this is like, this is like a golden opportunity. You yeah. caught him in the act that doesn't happen every day. It's very hard to do. It's like catching a Russian spy during the cold war. Exactly. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, and so, um, the case began in 2014. He was arrested. He was, came in 2013 and it just got adjudicated this year. And, and, and unfortunately not guilty, you know? Not guilty of terrorism, but I tell you, it wasn't because, I mean, I know the case inside and out. It wasn't because of the things, he, the guy had explosives on him. I know he had, let me say that very correctly. He had- he had a room. Well, he had a hotel and everything. I mean, he had an apartment, but he had a residue of chemical substances on his hand that he said was planted on him. Uh, he uh, had all kinds of surveillance and reconnaissance footage and uh, of Peruvian infrastructure roads, airport security, Jewish targets. Um, he uh, had been in contact with specific individuals in neighboring countries that were close to Hezbollah. And also there was a case, this is one many people don't know about, that was in 2014. I think a couple of years later, they actually busted in Bolivia, in La Paz, a warehouse full of TNT, like enough right. to do That's a major right. terrorist attack. Um, and uh, very much suspicion that Hamdar, this guy, the, the guy that was arrested in Peru, his name is Mohammed Ghalem Hamdar, that he was connected to that case. But you know, you're right. They're all over Latin America. They're all over the United States. That's right. It's a dangerous time to have those guys, and it's and very often that's a dangerous time yeah. when when Trump assassinated uh, Soleimani. Soleimani yeah. um, uh, you know, that was they they have not given up. No, that's the, and that's that's not a thing that's gonna go away. Yeah, and they're just maybe they're biding their time. I don't know what they're waiting for, but they certainly could have attacked inside the U.S. now. No, but I, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna end it here because I want to. I think where we're gonna end on, and um, there's a whole other slew of things I want to talk about with NGOs, but we're gonna save that for the next time you come on, because we're kind of in this environment now where more and more people are worried about a potential war with Iran, right? could be a war between Iran and Israel. It could be a proxy war with Hezbollah, Hamas, and others attacking Israel. But my sense is that people underestimate what Iran can actually do because they're a global actor. They have networks all over the place. And when, when, the, when the balloon goes up and Iran really says, okay, this now is the time, all these cases that you've been looking at for your whole career, that I've been looking at for my career, these things is going to become very real. Yeah. And I feel like people don't understand that that's, that's a... That's not a Netflix special. That's a reality. That that's that's here. It's present. It's clear. Um, so maybe you could talk just on like like a final remarks 
you know, what should America prepare for? Because uh, your whole career you spent looking at terrorists, looking at subversive actors, looking at the U.S. southern border. Um, what's going to happen? Surprise attack. Yeah. I mean, this is going to be uh, when when they want to, when, when it blows, uh, when they want to, I think we're going to all be like, oh, my God, what? Ha- how? where did that come from? How did we not know about these guys that were here? And it'll be one of those. Um, so, you know, I... I I'm not a too much of a sky is falling uh, yeah. hyperbolic guy. I mean, you know, they they. I think that a lot of the utility of Unit Nine Ten, the IGAO, is just to make us feel this way. Yeah. To let us know not to go too far with them because they could, as Soleimani once said, "We're closer than you think." Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but you know, in the in the present environment, I don't know in when this runs, if where the war in Israel will be, but you know, my feeling is that, you know, the bad guys know about our border. Uh, I believe bad guy, lots of bad guys uh, beyond the 270 that we know of today have crossed in. And maybe a lot of them should be on the watch list, but haven't ever made it to the watch list, but they should be. And for a lot of those guys, even if they're not coming in planning something, they're emotionally in, in connected to the conflict over there. They're just emotionally, people just going off. There was recently a, in Houston, yeah. a Jordanian uh, busted with his weapons. And, you know, he's, by the way, Jordanian is, is probably just another, it's, a, it's an alternative. There, he's probably a Palestinian, Palestinian yeah. with a Jordanian passport. A lot of them have that. But, um, I think some of these guys might be prone to just popping off mm. one day. Like I've had it with those Israelis and the U.S. support for them. I'm going to get me some Jews. Mm. So um, and we're seeing a little bit of that already. We're starting to see that, yeah. right? And I think that the longer this thing goes on, the more of a of a prospect that is. And if the Iranians get involved on the north, on the northern border, if by the time this thing airs, they're they're actually firing the rockets. And the Israelis have to go in by land, you know, with the tanks and everything to take the launch pads or whatever it is they have to do. Uh, That's when the um, IJO potentially could become a a major problem. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got aircraft carriers over there threatening them that if you do something like that, we could get involved militarily. The U.S. military could get involved in that and... Anyway, I, I sort of like maybe chess move a few yeah, pieces no, ahead. But. No, but I think you're 100%. And I think America needs to be prepared that the war is going to come here. It's already coming here. It's coming through the U.S. southern border. Uh, this isn't just about just illegal migration. You know, uh, This is a national security issue. Uh, this is um, a border security issue. And I think as President Trump said, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. Uh, and so that's very real. Um, and I think now most Americans are now waking up to this because of everything that this second, third order effects of the border. And, and I think I've, as I've heard other people say before that uh, the border is now getting, uh, I would say if you don't have to go to the border, the border comes to you. And now in that's New York, right. Chicago, Washington, D.C., it's everywhere. But Todd, it's been a pleasure. And, and I really want to plug your books again. Uh, these are two great books. And I just realized that they kind of have the same graphic designer because they look very similar with different colors. But the first book, it's America's Covert Border War, published in, 2000, in 2021, The Untold Story 
of the nation's battle to prevent jihadist infiltration, which was timely then, and I think it's even probably more timely I think now. So. And do you see a resurgence in, yeah. in purchases? Yeah, oh, of, yeah, yeah. Because the, all my interviews now, uh, everybody wants to know about the terrorists crossing terrorist the border states, yeah. with, with the war over there. And that's what and this book, the, the, this book, America's Covert Border War, is really about. It's a it's the untold counterterrorism story of the, the global war on terror, which was happening on the U.S. southern border. And it's these programs that uh, I contend are are collapsed now that yeah. have ris risen, have has uh, increased the, elevated the um, threat. And that's what this book is about, about the collapse. Yes. Uh, overrun, uh, how Joe Biden unleashed the greatest border crisis in U.S. history and probably one of the biggest border crises in modern history uh, in the world. Uh, they can be both be purchased on Amazon. We're going to put links in the show description. Todd, how else can they follow your work, your writing? Yeah, I mean, I'm on uh, X, Benzman Todd on X. Uh, you can, I have a website, toddbenzman.com, because I write in a wide variety of publications. They're not all at Center for Immigration Studies. Uh, so you can go to toddbenzman.com and find all my uh, writings and my congressional testimony and and you're a senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Center for Studies. Immigration Studies yeah. So you can follow uh, Todd on X. You could go to his website, download all his uh, writings. Very prolific. You read a lot. You have a lot of uh, good stuff. Is there another book in the works, another book in the making? And that last one just about <laughs> killed me. But, yeah. uh, you know, my publisher did send me an email the other day saying, hey, what about a third? And I'm like, <laughs> This one just came out this year, right? Yeah, in uh, February, late February. Late February. So, uh, um, Todd, it's been a pleasure. I feel like I'm, it, I finally were able to come to your town, Good. to Austin, Texas. Uh, you know, we're a little closer to the border, so I feel like you get that little bit more of that energy. And, and, and we talked about this uh, beginning part of the show. Uh, the border is fascinating. For all its problems and challenges, uh, it's very much like, a, like an international and domestic uh, conundrum, right? It, it blends foreign policy with domestic policy. It's the intersection of illicit and licit. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just a very fascinating thing. And I think it just applies to borders all over the world. And I think no one's been covering it uh, as effectively or as prolifically as you have. So keep up the good work. Uh, uh, I always tell, I always say, uh, you know, people are, um, I'm asked often, like, uh, how come you're the only one down there? I'm not the only one, yeah. but like, we're, we're the regular. Yeah. Uh, you know, because big newspapers have immigration reporters. Yeah. I think um, they're doing it more now. But just, just, starting, just starting now, but they're not doing it as long as you've doing it. Or really, I think they have to understand what has happened. The history matters. And it's not something like, you know, for many people, the border crisis happened overnight, but it didn't. You know, as you documented well in your books, it's been happening. It's been evol evol evolving or devolving, however you want to say it. Um, and I think that your work is going to be increasingly important. Um, I, and the reason our podcast is called Border Wars isn't just because of the U.S. southern border, but it's actually because... I think the conflicts of today and the conflicts of tomorrow are fundamentally issues of national sovereignty. That's what's being challenged. You, know, you hear a lot about democracy and democratic backsliding, rise of authoritarianism, but the underpinning of democracy is the nation state. The ability to have an ordered immigration, a border that's secure and enforced is the concept of having a uh, sovereignty. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah. And you know, I'm not aware of any other country in the world that does this. That accepts so many. Nobody, <laughs> nobody does this. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. also, to my knowledge, no country has ever done it dating down to ancient times. You know, they had walls and whatever. But yeah. this is like, why does the United States have to be the one doing this crazy experiment in, uh, you know, social experiment? Social like experiment. That? 
on testing like the limits borders. of national sovereignty. Yeah. Okay. Well, Todd, it's been a great, it's been a pleasure to have you. Um, again, you can follow Todd Bensman on X at his website, toddbensman.com. Uh, be sure to f- uh, subscribe if you haven't subscribed to the podcast. Uh, follow us on all uh, digital platforms, Amazon, Spotify, uh, and obviously YouTube. And we'll see you in the next episode. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Subscribe to the Border Wars podcast and visit our website at securefreesociety.org. See you in the next episode.